Welcome to Household Hermeneutics, where we're going to take you on a journey through systematic and historical theology and help you apply it to your daily family life. Hey guys, welcome back to episode number four of Household Hermeneutics. We are so glad that you're joining us today. We're jumping into the authority and inerrancy of scripture, which is going to be a great one. And Jason, I'm excited to have you guys yeah, joining us. I'm very excited for this one. It builds really well on last times, uh, talking about how the word of God is inspired by him and it's his revelation for us. This is really the natural next step for that, talking about scripture's authority and its inerrancy. Yeah, it's kind of part two. And what I'm really excited about, we were just going over the notes because Jason wrote these a while ago. So we were just reviewing them before we sat down to record. And um, I got to the end and I was kind of writing out the conclusion. And um, I started writing out what we were going to be talking about in the next four episodes, which I am so excited for. Like we're kind of laying the basis, the foundation here. Um, And it's all good. But then well, okay, as a history nerd, the next four episodes are going to be really exciting, which we will talk about in a few minutes. Um, But today, like I said, we're jumping into authority and inerrancy. And so as I was going through the notes, kind of thinking, wow, maybe this episode's going to be almost kind of boring or very basic. And I thought, yeah, but you know what? This is the groundwork that we need to lay with inerrancy, with the authority of scripture. And I think Sometimes this feels a little basic, like this feels a little like, oh, yeah, okay, well, let's move on. But if we don't have this piece right, if we do not have this piece foundational and we know why this is so important, then anything else we talk about in the next five years on this podcast uh, is really not going to mean a whole lot if we are not really rooted in this. Well, and that's why we decided to start with bibliology. Right. Because. Everything we know about God, I mean, all the special revelation about God and about the truth of the world and the gospel, it's all in the Bible. So if we haven't established a correct view and understanding of God's word, then it's hard to really go anywhere from there, which so that's why we're starting here. And like you said, we talked about the divine inspiration of scripture. Mm -hmm. We talked about all of that last time. This time we're diving in to authority and inerrancy, and we're going to start with authority. The question of how do we really know that the Bible is God's word and that what it claims is true? Yeah. So when we say that scripture is authoritative, what we mean is that every single word of scripture is God's. And so um, it has God's authority behind it. And so to disbelieve or disobey any of the words that we find in God's word in scripture in the 66 books of the canon um, is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. And um, often we talked a lot about progressive Christianity in the last episode, um, false religions too, but especially progressive Christianity is a very big problem uh, in Western culture today, um, is that this is very much where they leave off or or they kind of see maybe there's God, there's, you know, the the fatherly figure in the sky, but then like God's words kind of separate. And that's kind of maybe semi man-made, even if they kind of feel like it's got some right. inspiration from God behind, but they start to really separate out the yeah. two as if God's word isn't um, completely authoritative yeah. from God himself. Yeah. And so this, as you can tell, probably this is very much tied into inspiration, which we talked about last mm-hmm. time, uh, but it's kind of like the, the focus is different. We talked about and really established to a pretty deep level last time 
that scripture is divinely inspired by God himself. It's his words. And when we're talking about the authority of God, we are kind of building on that. We're saying since these are God's mm -hmm. words, mm -hmm. they have every ounce of his ultimate authority behind them. Mm -hmm. And therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any of them is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. It is that serious, which is another reason why, as Christians, we want to read and study the Bible, because we want to know how to obey him and not to disobey him. Well, yeah, like when we're when we're talking about authority and God's authority, sometimes I don't know how to say this or if this is going to make sense to anybody else but Jamie's brain. But sometimes when I I mean, I live in this world, we were born into this world. We just take for granted the fact that we have scripture, that we have God's word. Right. And, and even as believers, like we, we, we trust that God is there. But what we need to remember is we were born into this world and as Christians, we know that there is the creator God, that he has created this whole world, that he has created the universe, that he is so much bigger and more magnificent than we can even fathom, that he is the one who sustains us second by second, like he sustains the entire world. Like you just think of you think of the magnitude of God and the fact that he has written through men a book for us. Yeah. It's his divinely inspired word. It's his authoritative word. And he has given it to us. And I think we just take that for granted sometimes. Like we we know it's God's word, but like this is how, you know, we're like, oh, just speak to me, Lord. Tell me what to do. And yet he's given us this entire gigantic book. Yes. And are we pouring our time into studying his word and seeing we, we have what God has told us, right. what he has revealed to us right there. It's not a mystery. We have that. And it is authoritative. And um, just what an incredible actual blessing that is and yep. what an incredible thing that that is. And so I don't know, it, 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 that's kind of a tangent, I suppose, but it's just what my mind starts to think of is we just we take for granted that we have this entire Bible that is God's word. It's his authoritative word. Um, and just just how actually incredible that is and how much we need to see that for how incredible that it really is. Yeah, it, it is really cool that, uh, you know, the religion, Christianity we actually have this book that contains God's words to us, and he spells out so much of what he wants for us. Like It's like I covered in one of the early on episodes for Family Discipleship. It's the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is like, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Mm -hmm. And the second question or one of the next early ones is like, how do we know how to do that? It's in the Bible alone. Mm -hmm. It teaches us these things. Mm -hmm. All we have to do mm -hmm. is read it and to study it and to understand it. Mm -hmm. That's why we get so passionate about doing this sort of study. And that's why we're trying to share it here. It's to help ourselves because it's, it's causing us to do a lot of research and study on our own. Yeah. And we're trying to help others. We're trying to see this is how exciting and passionate you can get about learning these things yeah. and applying them to your lives and getting better at glorifying God, enjoying him forever. Your own personal sanctification should hopefully uh, improve as you're going through all this. It, it's a really, really big process, uh, but I think it's worthwhile. Well, and like thinking about our kids, thinking about our six children that we are raising, I want to be this passionate teaching them. And sometimes I take for granted the things that I know. I studied a long time ago that God's word is authoritative. Okay. Yeah. Been there, kind of done that, kind of studied that yeah. we've moved on. Um, and Yet, if we're not careful in our very, very, very busy world, in our very, very busy lives, 
it can be really easy to miss teaching our children some of these foundations. Yeah. We teach them, you know, we teach them the story of Noah's Ark. They know that one. You know, they know these stories. They know a lot about Jesus, probably. Like if we're just teaching them popular stories or even just a lot of the, the devotionals we're teaching them. But like, are we teaching them these basics? Are we going into why God's word is authoritative, exactly. especially as they grow and their understanding grows? Yeah. Um, these are the things. I mean, I mean, you guys have heard me. If you've listened to the other three episodes, yeah. I've said the same thing a yes. hundred times, but it's it's so important um, that I want to encourage you. But I also need to be reminding my own self that this this is the only thing that matters in life exactly. is taking this time to teach our kids this. And we need to go back to the basics and look at teaching our kids, not only getting excited ourselves to be like, oh, yeah, God's word is pretty magnificent. We yeah. should spend time. Well, but are we teaching them those basics as well? Exactly. And and this this is some of the sort of stuff that you kind of always can take for granted because mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, we tr we trust the Bible. It's you know, we read it and we can learn to know God better. And it gives us a lot of rules for how to live. And it has the gospel message in it and all this stuff. But like sometimes just like the, the, the fact that it's truly God's word, it's truly carries all of his authority with it. And all of all of these other attributes of scripture that we're going through mm -hmm. that we have already that we're going to in future episodes, those can sometimes go by the wayside. And in, in what you're saying, Jamie, it can very easily when when you just kind of take those for granted yourself, you can kind of neglect to actually teach mm -hmm. them. Like you don't even think to teach them because yeah. it seems so basic. And yet this is what we need to be teaching. Yes. And that is why so many children do walk away as they get older because they never made the faith their own and they never as soon as they're confronted in college by crazy professors uh, who start to poke holes or what they think are poking holes in Christianity. Uh, these kids have no foundation yep. and they're like, oh, all right. Yeah. OK. Yo, it just seemed kind of silly. Yeah. Oh, well, and I think I've mentioned before on the show, <laughs> but I had a philosophy class in college by a theologian who was an open theist who essentially, I mean, there's a lot to that, but essentially at the bare bones, an open theist is one who believes that God does not actually know the future and he doesn't actually control everything. Quite a big departure from Orthodox Christianity on the right. doctrine of God, right? Well, I had a sufficient inculcation of theology as a kid so that when I was in university and I had this guy saying all these things Are you about- British when you were in university? <laughs> Apparently Jason at college, British, whatever. British. Let's have the British say it. Well, it was a when university. It, when you were at university. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, that that didn't it didn't shake me at all. Yeah. I was like, that's stupid, and I know why. Because I like it wasn't like, oh, I've never thought that about oh, God before. Interesting. Like I don't have a reason why I should think anything else, and this guy seems really smart. So, okay, well maybe that's true. I never went there because I had a very well rounded understanding of God's attributes. And so I, it was just kind of like it gave me the equipment to be able to deal with that. And I mean, that kind of interaction happens all the time in the yeah. world, well, whether it's to you, whether it's to your kids, whether it's to your college age kids. It happens a lot. Well, and yeah. So Jason and I actually had that class together. We took I don't know how many college classes we took together. We got well, it was married my in junior college. year and your freshman year. And we had several classes together. That year. Yeah, that was a fun year. But our philosophy teacher was crazy. I actually went on and I had to have a second class with him. And yeah, it was the second class as we got into deeper stuff was really interesting. And I ended up being like the lone dissenter in that class, like <laughs> arguing with him in a respectful way, um, but disagreeing with him. But yeah, it. I mean, what it did was we didn't, I mean, as 20 year old college students, we didn't know, we didn't know all the answers off the top. No, of we head. didn't. But it allowed us to dig deeper because he started saying stuff in class that we were like, 
hold up. Are you a Christian? What is this? And it really made us dig into it. And so as nerdy college students, we would spend our weekends then like researching like what? Okay, what is this guy even talking about? Like what is? Oh, I didn't know what that term was. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, to be able to look into that deeper. But we knew that there was that it was wrong. We knew that there was some issues there and it wasn't just like, oh, it's a different perspective. No, there's some really wrong things. there. Um, And so anyway, okay, now we're getting into the weeds. Yeah. And we're also talking about (laughs) theology stuff and not bibliology stuff. So let's bring it back. Okay, so with authority. Yes. Historically, the church has held to this doctrine from the early church and on. Yes. And so that's a really good place to start. So why don't you take that? Yes, it has been just like we do with, with everything else here. As you probably know by now, we like to go back to history and we're doing the historical part of historical theology right now. And we like to see what the church has said about these things throughout history. So for the topic of the authority of scripture, Irenaeus in early church said he called the Bible the ground and pillar of our faith. And that went beyond just early church. You look in the Middle Ages, John Gerson said, quote, Holy Scripture is the rule of faith against which no authority may be admitted, end quote. And then we can move even a little bit farther forward. Let's look at the Reformation time period. Reformer Martin Luther famously championed the concept of sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone as authority. John Calvin, another reformer, agreed with Martin Luther, and he said about this, quote, if we desire to provide in the best way for our consciences, that they may not be perpetually beset by the instability of doubt or vacillation, and that they may not also boggle at the smallest quibbles, we ought to seek our conviction in a higher place than human reason, judgments, or conjectures, that is, in the secret testimony of the Spirit. Now, finally, and even more importantly than all of church history, we can see the concept of authority being established in literally hundreds of verses within the Bible that claim that its words are God's authoritative words. So, for example, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of verses beginning with the phrase, thus says the Lord. So um, it's actually really interesting in the ESV version, English Standard Version of the Old Testament, that phrase, thus says the Lord, is found 417 times, um, which is um, amazing. How many books are in the? 39. 39. Um, So in 39 books, that's found 417 times. That's like, that's quite a bit. Um, Now, this doesn't mean that these verses are claiming all the words in the Old Testament are um, directly God like directly quoting God, God, like we talked about in the last episode. Um, But it does show that in the Old Testament alone, we have many, many uh, written records that are stated as God's own words. Exactly. And we can see this moving on even into the New Testament. One of our favorite verses that we've talked about in multiple episodes right now, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. There are many places where New Testament writers quote the Old Testament and even the new and even quoting elsewhere within the New Testament and calls them God's words. There's many times where Paul or one of the disciples will say, you know, it has been written or, or God has said this. These are God's words. And they're either quoting other writers of the New Testament or they're quoting from the prophets or the or the Psalms or something from Old Testament. And that is just more confirmation that these are God's words and they carry his authority. Well, and so and we talked we talked at depth 
about this in the last episode. So if you have not caught up yet, go listen to that one um, because we really laid the groundwork there. But the important part is seeing that God's word itself is referring to itself as God's word. Like it is self-containing. It's calling itself that. It wasn't like a man 500 years later was like, oh, see that book they put together? I'm going to say that's God's word. Exactly. It is self, self-descriptive. Yes. In that way, whatever. Yes. I'm stumbling to say this. Okay, take the next next one, the okay. next point. Yeah, so an example of this can be found, and I, I say look this up for yourself and see. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes Jesus from Luke 10.7. That's Paul talking in 1 Timothy 5.18, quoting Jesus from Luke 10.7, and he calls those words scripture. So that's just one example of many of, of what Jamie's just saying, of this self-description as the words of God, as scripture. Mm-hmm. So a- another thing we've talked about now, looking through church history, we've looked at sh- some scripture. Also, we as Christians have the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. indwelling within us, mm-hmm. right? And the Holy Spirit convinces us that the Bible is God's authoritative word. The Bible itself says that it's the word of God. But the Holy Spirit actually helps us as Christians to be convinced. The Bible itself actually talks about how the the word of God can be, you know, like a stumbling block or foolishness to to the unsaved. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, it says that normal people will not accept God's word because it's folly to them. For a Christian, however, who has the indwelling Holy Spirit within them, they do recognize that the words of the Bible are God's words. That is one of the services, I guess you could say, that mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit provides. It gives us that conviction that we are truly convinced of this. Now, I will say, though, if you are having doubts, if you are struggling, if you're like, I want to see the canon, I want to see what Bible translations are rooted in, which we're going to cover, that's not wrong. So it's not wrong to say if you are having some struggles, then that means you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's not what I think you just said that sentence a little definitively. But sure. I, but I just want to give that caveat. Um, but I think that is this is very interesting to talk about because Jason and I were talking about this earlier as younger Christians um, and as just as younger people in college. You know, we were you know really looking at apologetics, really looking at our crazy philosophy teacher and wanting to argue apologetically with with non-Christians or wanting uh, people to to see uh, why we trust in God's word. And um, I feel like at one point in my walk, I kind of felt like, well, some of this is kind of silly because if they don't see it as God's word, then they're not going to care. And because yeah. I'm kind of was trained to argue from a, maybe a more just philosophical viewpoint. Yeah. But the big part that's missing there is that God is the one who is doing the regenerative work yes. in that person. And so we have to remember that too, is that um, we, it's not our job to convince someone from history. It's yeah. not our job to convince someone apologetically. Now those can be good tools to use to evangelize. Absolutely. But it's not up to us to be like, oh, if we could just word it the exact right way, we yep. could make them see it is still God who's doing that regener- regenerative work um, within that person. And it's the same way. Like, it's not our job to convince someone yes. that it's God's authority. And we can lay that argument out. We can show them scripture. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the Lord and the Holy yeah. Spirit that are convicting them. Okay, we, Jason wants to talk. We are <laughs> sowing seeds. Yes. But it's God who is watering and bringing the harvest. Yes. And That is very motivating and comforting to me because we obey. We do what God has called us to, but it's not our job to bring it to fruition. It's God's job. And that is definitely takes a load off because it's just like when it's up to you, like even with like our own kids, like everyone, Mm -hmm. I presume, really prays and hopes that their kids will be saved Mm -hmm. and will come to the Lord. 
Um, and, and it's, but sometimes when it feels like that's all in your power and it's like, I have to be the perfect parent who like teaches them about God and demonstrates and models his truth every day in my life. And every, anytime I make a, you know, I miss an opportunity to talk to them about something spiritual or every time I, I do something sinful in front of them, like, it's like, oh my goodness, like I'm just, I'm, I'm ruining them. They're not going to, you know, <laughs> but the fact is like, we do need to try and be as faithful as possible yeah. to actually teaching them and to modeling to them. But it's not actually ultimately in our hands. And that takes a huge load off. Well, I mean, and that's that's a good point to bring up is like we even keep I was just talking about this a few minutes ago and we keep talking about this on the podcast about how, you know, especially in today's day and age, they're going to have crazy philosophy teachers right. like we need to be teaching them. We need to teach them the authority of God's word. Um, and we do. But there's going to be so many times where we fail or we forget things or we don't understand things correctly or the, or they're not listening like the list goes on. And it can feel like everything then is our responsibility. Yes. If we don't teach them theology and doctrine perfectly right, they're, you know, we've ruined them, like yeah, you said. Exactly. Um, and that's that's not the that's not the point either. So we don't go to either extreme where we just don't teach theology and do nothing because it's all in God's hands, or we can go to the other extreme where we feel like it's all riding on us and we have to do everything perfect. Yeah. And really the truth is more in the middle. We need to be obedient, we need to be faithful, we need to be teaching them. Um, but we also know at the end of the day it's the work is in god's hands yep. it's not in ours and that's really good for me um to remember that when i start feeling like oh we're not doing enough we're not doing this we're not doing that um that it is in god's hands ultimately and so i want to give you that encouragement too um because really i get encouraged talking about this of training our children of doing this because there are so many times where i don't use my time wisely there are so many times where i could be uh, more patient and more loving with the kids. Yep. There's times where I could put my phone down and have a conversation with them and do a Bible study. There are so many ways where I need to be more obedient to God. Yep. There's ways where I need to be less lazy and I need to make sure that I am taking the time. I mean, that's the big one in this day and age. I need to be carving out the time to teach them this. But it's not in like an ABC, one, two, three, if I just check off everything off the list, boom, we'll have a bunch of many Christians. Exactly. It's that I need to be obedient with my time for the Lord. Yes. And so that is such an important thing yes. to, to make sure that we are covering because yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to discourage ourselves or you guys that we just have to do everything perfect and then we'll be fine. Yeah, totally agree. And okay. it's funny because some of the stuff that now we're even talking about is touching on like, we're, we're, we're veering into soteriology right now and, you know, salvation issues and, mm -hmm. and regeneration. And so it's, it's cool to me because we're not there yet. We're going to do several mm -hmm. episodes on that at some point. But I do love that when you start looking at, at scripture like this, mm -hmm. you study theology in a systematic and a historical and a biblical way, you can really start to see how, even though you can kind of separate and systematize these doctrines, they do have so much effect on one another. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to quickly pause and say that, like, we're talking about bibliology and the authority of scripture. And somehow now we're talking about, you know, salvation issues. Like, that's mm -hmm. really cool, I think. Mm -hmm. And evangelism, like, anyways, now let's get back to authority. Mm -hmm. We've talked about a lot of the most convincing and authoritative arguments and ways that we can see that scripture itself establishes authority. There are more ways, even though I would say that they would come secondarily to what we've already talked about. An example of this would be that the Bible within itself is historically accurate and um, internally consistent. It contains, for example, countless prophecies that have been fulfilled mm -hmm. hundreds of years after the fact. Mm -hmm. So we, we can see things that were prophesied in the Old Testament that since then have come 
to pass. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those, there has been archaeological evidence of them. There has been evidence written about in other history that touches on, like not within the Bible itself, but other histories from from ancient times. And that is really cool and pretty compelling to see. And it really speaks to the authority of scripture. Yeah. These facts really do help us to see. It's kind of supplemental information, uh, evidentiary information to help us to believe that the Bible is authoritative. I would say that that is not as authoritative as God's own word saying that it is authoritative, but it does exist. And I think it does help. Mm-hmm. So let's move. As you know, we like to look at confessions here, historical documents. They're awesome. So let's look really quick at Article 5 of the Belgic Confession, where it says, we receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from Mm -hmm. God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's referring to the 66 books. Yes, the canon, which yes. we will establish how that was established mm-hmm. and why we can trust it in the next couple episodes. Mm-hmm. So now moving on to Section 4, Chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession. It says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, And therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. So this is saying, obviously, that the authority of Bible is strong. It is so ultimate that it imposes upon us an obligation to believe it. And like I said at the beginning, if we don't believe and obey scripture, we are sinning. Mm -hmm. It's it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. So another great quote, um, R.C. Sproul um, says, if the Lord God Almighty opens his mouth, There is no room for debate and no excuse for unbelief. It is the word of God, and everyone is duty-bound to submit to to its authority. Yeah, I love that quote. Mm-hmm. I love yeah, he, he just puts it like he just in that one sentence. Yeah, so like, he really oh, cut. Yes. We've been talking for like 20 or so minutes on this. Oh, that's and all we needed. Like, we should have just it. come in and read that. Yeah. All right, so a little bit more from history. I love this stuff, so bear with me. Mm-hmm. In section 5, chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession, It says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. That was amazing, but is that just me or was that like one single Super complex sentence. That was crazy. (laughs) I think the entire thing was like one sentence. Unless you missed it. Oh, my goodness. Transcribing it. Okay. So now that we've kind of covered that authority, why does it matter? Um, And the first thing that we need to touch on is the truthfulness of Scripture. And so if we believe that Scripture is fully inspired by God and is 100% his word, 
and it is authoritative because of that, then we have to talk about the truthfulness of scripture. So, okay, so, you know, it was inspired by God. God's authoritative. So what does that mean, though, for us as we are reading scripture? And the first thing is that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. That is very important to know. Mm -hmm. God will not and cannot say tell a falsehood. Mm -hmm. Titus 1, 2 speaks of God, quote, who never lies. Hebrews 6, 18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. So if God can't lie, therefore his words are all true and without error. We see this in Proverbs 30 in verse 5. Every word of God proves true. And not only this, but God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. John 17 tells us that Jesus, while praying to his father, says, quote, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can mm-hmm. read other people who are. And I took one day of Greek. One day of in Greek. In college. <laughs> I did. I went to the first class. I said I was going to add. Well, I did Hebrew as my biblical language and I loved it. And I was like, I want to do Greek. But but languages are really hard for me. I don't I don't learn them very well. So I was like, I have four units I need to add this year. I'm going to do Greek. And I did the first day. And then I was like, nope, never mind. My workload's way too hard this year. And I quit. So what did you end up adding? I don't remember something else like a history class that oh, okay. was way easier for me to do. <laughs> Greek is so, so hard. Yeah. But I do one day want to go back and learn Greek. But anyway, I just thought that was funny because I'm going to say I'm a, I'm a scholar. I took Greek. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, that's true. Technically, kind of. So in this verse, the Greek word that Jesus uses is not the adjective for true, but the noun form. So literally truth. He said that God's word is truth itself. So to clarify, we're talking about written scripture here. That is our final and ultimate authority. We're not talking about academic speculation and theories about what it can mean, because obviously there's a lot of commentary and, and writings on what scripture, individual passages, or even entire Mm -hmm. books or testaments could actually mean. We're talking about scripture itself. So this is really getting us into the topic of inerrancy, because we're talking about now how and why we can trust that God's word is actually true. And not only just true, but it is the ultimate truth in and of itself. So the next part of this episode, which will be quicker, um, is inerrancy. So we talked about the authority, now the inerrancy, which What does that mean? Um, The inerrancy, when we say the inerrancy of scripture, we're saying that that scripture is without error. So there are no errors in the Bible. Okay. So what does that mean? Because this is another, can be a controversial topic. So as we were just talking about the truthfulness of God's word, which you could do a much deeper study just on that, um, that God's word is truthful. And if we call it inerrant, by what we mean by that is that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So it is it is without error and it is completely truthful and true because we know that God is true. God yeah. is real. God wrote this. He cannot lie. Like you start, you know, going through that cycle um, and therefore scripture is without error and true. Yes. So really quick, just like we did with the authority of scripture, let's look at inerrancy in history. Going back to early church father Tertullian, he said, the statements of holy scripture will never be discordant with truth. Let's move on to Augustine. 
or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce that. <laughs> I, I never. Jason and I have debates. Half about the time that. I say Augustine, which really bugs Jamie. She prefers Augustine. But I don't know. I had to, I had Bible teachers who said it both ways. I've heard no. preachers say it both ways. All through college, all through our life, we've both said Augustine. And then in the last like two years, Jason, every once in a while, will say Augustine. And I'm like, no, which <laughs> I mean, people totally do. It's totally one of those that you can pronounce it completely either way. But it's Augustine. But anyway, go ahead. So speaking of him <laughs> who shall not be pronounced, <laughs> he said, I most firmly believe that the Bible's authors were completely free from error. Mm. Now let's move to the Middle Ages. Anselm said the same thing. He said, for I am sure that if I say anything which is undoubtedly contradictory to Holy Scripture, it is wrong. And if I become aware of such a contradiction, I do not wish to hold to that opinion. That is a really good way just to, to use scripture to make sure that you are living according to truth. If you hold any beliefs that are turn out to be contrary to scripture, then you better change your beliefs because it's not scripture that's wrong. It's you. This same concept goes during the Reformation. Luther made the point that not only has scripture never erred, it cannot err. And this is really cool. I actually did a little bit of a deep dive into this because I was studying it in depth. But we're not going to go into my deep dive here. But in 1978, many evangelicals came together in Chicago and they drafted and signed the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which holds this view as well. Obviously, it's in the name. <laughs> yeah. And I, one, I think something Jason and I look obviously at a lot of like we're looking at this statement made by in 1978 and we look at creeds and you look at confessions um, and we don't look at those as scripture themselves. But um, what came and I don't actually even remember. Did we talk about this in one of the first two episodes? I have. We did. Yes. The, the, are you talking about the fog. fact that, that scripture is ultimate and that this is not nearly as. No, but I mean, yes. But I mean, the reason we look at these is that um, the 200 evangelicals. um came together and really talked about this. They saw that this was becoming a problem in 1978, that this was a problem that people were going away from biblical inerrancy. Um, and they really came together to hash out what is it that we believe? What is it that scripture says? Um, and again, not that that's authority. That is not authority that we just take yeah. their word for. That and is go, not authority oh, equal to scripture. No, but they're coming together and kind of, um, writing this down in a very clear, succinct way can be really, really helpful when we are looking at um, this is not, you know, the inerrancy of scripture is not something new that was invented 20 years ago. This is what historical Christianity has believed from the days of Jesus. Well, and before. Yes. And um, so I think it can just be really helpful. That's why we do look at these. Um, we don't put it on the same, you know, it, we're not saying that, the, you know, this statement is scripture or anything like that, right. but it can be a really helpful tool when we are looking at and digging into these doctrines. Exactly. So I highly recommend if you would like to go deeper on the issue of inerrancy after this podcast, one of my biggest recommendations to you is to look up the statement online. Like I said, it's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It is a treasure trove of both, um, positive statements and also rejections or negative statements mm. on what they do believe and what they do not believe about the inerrancy of scripture. I have stuck to one quote from it because if I tried to quote the entire thing, this episode would be much too long. Jason would just sit and read the whole yes, thing Yes, I would totally do he that. He really would. But um, we're I not have gonna... to limit him. I'm like, no, too many. <laughs> yes. Take them out. So we're going to go with this. The statement says, we affirm that scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. 
We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. So, like Jamie was just saying, the statement was signed by over 200 evangelicals. I'm not going to read all their names either because that would take too long. However, there are several notables that I did pick out, including Greg Bonson, James Montgomery Boyce, Josh McDowell, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, Francis Schaefer, and R.C. Sproul, who actually was one of the ones who actually kind of spearheaded this entire mm. thing. It was kind of his baby. Yeah. So um, those are all, I mean, I love every single one of those people and I have learned a lot mm -hmm. from all of them. So I think that's a pretty cool roundup of just a few of the names that signed this thing. So some of those things that that statement that I just read from the statement is talking about directly to some of the things that people actually challenge the concept of the Bible being inerrant because they'll say things like actually the Bible is only authoritative for matters specifically relating to faith and practice, mm. but nothing more. Mm -hmm. They say that it's only inerrant when it's speaking directly on areas that relate directly to the faith and the practice of the faith. But anything else is more hazy and maybe not as trustworthy and we don't need to believe it as as word for word. Well, so this is like, yeah, this is the concept that like at church when you are you know, figuring out what songs and what to preach on, like, okay, God's word applies there, but your, your regular life, who you date, who you marry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, not really yeah. like, you know, God's word's not really authoritative in those areas. Whereas we would say, no, God's word is authoritative into every single corner of yeah. your life. Um, and that it is sufficient for that as well. Yeah. And um, that's, it's where, that's where it maybe at first glance, it doesn't seem like the big, uh, the biggest distinction, but that is what will lead you down a very bad road when you oh, start yeah. going down that way. 100%. The Bible itself repeatedly states, and we're going to go back and look at another verse that we've looked at like in two or three episodes. Now, second Timothy three sixteen. it says, all scripture is profitable for us and that all of the Bible is God breathed. The Bible itself never restricts itself on what subjects it is inerrant on. The fact that they can make these statements that people are just like, well, only on these things can we actually trust that other things? Not so much. The Bible says the opposite. Like it has so many things about so much of your life that it makes it's crazy to me that mm -hmm. you could be like, OK, well, on these things, we believe it on these things. Not so much. That's so picky and choosy and arbitrary. Mm -hmm. I don't get it, but that is a very common thing. That's mm -hmm. why in 1978, they saw a clear need for a statement on this. Mm -hmm. So another objection that is leveled in inerrancy sometimes is people will actually take issue with the name itself, the term itself. There's being specifically inerrancy is the problem. It's too precise. It's too scientific sounding. It never is actually explicitly used in the Bible. The Bible does not itself actually contain the word inerrant. But that's not that uncommon, actually. The Bible doesn't have words for a lot of things that we talk about now. The word Trinity is not actually in the Bible. The concept is it's very well established in the Bible. But the word itself is not. The word incarnation, not found in the Bible. Those are two incredibly useful and helpful and necessary words to Christianity. Uh, but just like inerrancy or inerrant, it's not in the Bible. That's not the measuring rod we should be using for whether or not the concept of inerrancy is right or wrong is mm -hmm. by, to me, it seems really silly to take issue with the word just because it's not in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's <clears throat> just giving a simple word to use for the idea that scripture teaches. Yes. And like just, it's just putting a word to the yeah. 
to it. For, for those out there who think that the word is too sciencey sounding, too precise sounding, like come up with another word that doesn't sound the same, but means the same. And I'll start using that. That's fine <laughs> with me. Um, but until then, I'm going to use an errant. OK, so let's look at another objection. And that is looking at the accuracy or I guess questioning the accuracy of the original manuscripts and whether or not we can trust them. This is a deal, a big deal when it comes to the inerrancy of scripture, yeah. but it is such a large topic that this is very specifically what we're going to talk about in a future episode. So mm -hmm. we're going to just put a, a postmarker on that. We're not ignoring that, but we're going to mm -hmm. go deep on it later. Yeah. And I actually think that's actually a very interesting topic that can actually really encourage you. Yes. So one thing I actually found really interesting as I was researching this is in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He actually has a whole section on several claims that people will have uh, that there are clear errors in the Bible, like within the Bible, there's inconsistencies or, you know, something that contradicts itself. Right. Like they're trying to poke holes and say, well, look at these errors. Yes. So I'm not going to actually cover any of them here because some of them are more involved and long and actually looking at the claim and the scriptures involved and then looking at how they're explained is very involved. So if you want to look at those up, you could probably find them online or you can look them up in, like I said, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I commend that to you. Yeah, it's a great resource to yeah. have anyway. But first of all, if someone has ever said that to you, unless they're very well read and studied themselves, it's highly likely that they're just repeating what they've heard elsewhere mm -hmm. and that they actually don't have any ideas of errors themselves. <laughs> they've just been told or heard through the grapevine. Oh, there's errors. Yeah. The Bible is very internally inconsistent. It's full of problems. Don't even, you can't be believed. So first I would definitely push back on them and be like, well, what are these errors and see if they even know any. Mm -hmm. Secondly, this is a quote from Wayne Grudem and I, I love it. Wayne Grudem says, if we believe that the Bible is indeed inerrant, we should be eager and certainly not afraid to inspect these texts in minute detail. Mm -hmm. If you're a Christian, you believe that God's word is true and it's authoritative and it contains no falsehoods and it's inerrant, then we should absolutely be willing to test it. Mm -hmm. And like he said, in minute detail if necessary. So this is one of those areas where it's also very helpful to look at history like we like to here. Yeah. There is obviously no new problem in scripture. Scripture has existed for so long. Mm -hmm. These things have been studied and researched and brought up and objected to and then researched some more and reasons and explanations and, you know, things to rectify this have been done and done and done and done. So look like if, if you ever think of one or if someone brings one to you and you've never heard of it before, do some research, go talk to someone, read a book, look it up. There's probably going to be multiple sources for good, well-rounded explanations of these things. Mm -hmm. And there are, there's so many good resources out there. And I think that's something that's so important to be brought up is if you even look at, um, you look at science and you think like, I mean, it's just, God is just so good. Um, but, you know, you look at the fact that it, we believe that God did actually create this universe and that um that we believe scripture to be you know whatever all the stuff we're talking about today um then we would expect that this world would reflect that and i think sometimes we kind of like get scared that like science is going to somehow disprove the bible right. and there are scientists who think that they have and yet when you actually examine their claims they have not at all yeah. um their carbon dating does not disprove the bible there is so much science that actually <laughs> um well first of all is up to vast interpretation science sure. is not a settled 
thing that everybody agrees on. Um, sci- all of science is up to so much interpretation, um, but there there is so much evidence for God. There's so much evidence for a worldwide flood. Oh my gosh, just you get into the science and you start to go, wow, like it builds your faith up. And so like Jason's saying, like, don't be afraid to lean into those. Don't be afraid to look at those questions and say, oh, is it without error? Is it this? What? I mean, God's word says there was a worldwide flood, but yeah. is there really? Yeah, there's actually crazy evidence for it. Yeah. Um, and so there's just when you really start digging, it's really exciting. I remember the first time I heard um, it was probably in college. I don't remember the first time I heard the fact that um, every single I think literally every single um, ancient civilization has a massive flood myth. Yes. So every single you look at ancient the ancient Chinese, um, everybody has a myth that well they think is a myth of a worldwide flood in their ancestry, and it's like. Oh, yeah, because there really was. Yeah. And there's accounts of that. And so it's just it gets me so excited that like God and his word can take the scrutiny. It can take the scrutiny that we're going to throw at it because it's true, because it's accurate. And so with God's word and with errors, um, someone might say there's an error, but let's look a little bit deeper um, because it can take it. And I just find that. Yeah. So cool. I mean, we are called to have faith, but it does not need to be blind faith. And as a matter of fact, I would say it shouldn't be. Yeah. Like test the faith, study these things, never retreat from a difficulty or a seeming contradiction or some new study that's come out that seems to maybe be problematic for scripture. Like, I mean, if it's something you don't care about, then, you know, you don't have to go after it, but like, look into it, do some research and like actually test the faith and it will actually help you to grow stronger. Mm -hmm. We don't want to just have like this blind faith in something that seems to have a lot of holes and inconsistencies. It needs to be something that we actually believe as the bedrock foundation of our lives. And the way to do that is to test it and to actually study it when there seems to be problems, because that's the only way we can actually really trust it is if you can see the problems and then see them explained in a way that is convincing and 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 good and will actually help to grow your faith. Mm-hmm. And if we have a low view of scripture, if we have a low view of God's authority of his inerrancy, if we're just kind of like, yeah, okay, I go to church, but I don't really look at God's word as authoritative in my life, um, we're essentially placing our own very fallible human thoughts higher than God, as if like we somehow could possibly know better than the in- creator of this entire universe. Like somehow, oh, we just, you know, go, oh, yeah, well, we know better. Um, and so that is just, that's important to know. So what does this mean? For our life, when we talk about the authority of scripture, we've already touched on this a bit. Yeah, I feel like we kind of front loaded the episode with some of this. Actually, <laughs> we like jumped into application we just did. because we were so raring to go. That's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, for our life, what does this mean? To recap, we need to have a high view of God's word. And that's why we're spending several yeah. episodes yeah. on establishing these attributes, these yeah. qualities that God's word has, why we should have a high view on it, mm-hmm. of it. We need to trust that his word is true and complete. Hopefully, after listening to the last two episodes, you can understand and believe that it is God's word inspired by him. And because God himself is true and cannot lie, every word is true. Mm -hmm. And we need to be aware 
that many religions um, and progressive Christianity go astray as soon as they leave this foundation of God's word being perfect and authoritative. And so a lot of times it seems like a very, very, very little at first, a little tiny difference that you're like, okay, that just, it seems like semantics. You're barely saying it's a little bit different, but then that leads to reading passages very differently. And then I mean, all of a sudden it's full blown heresy yeah. before you even realize it, because it's just this slippery slope that as soon as you go away from God's word as authority, how do you know anything's true? How yeah. do you um, you're just inventing your own things then? At that That's point. why inerrancy is so important. Yes. If you can't believe that the Bible, like if you think that it's possible for the Bible to have to contain errors, honestly, what is the point of believing any of it? If if this here and that here and this piece here, well, actually, we think those are wrong. We don't need to take those seriously. Well, I mean, like, who's to say then? Like, if you give up inerrancy, then there's, in my opinion, no point to to believe any of it. And I mean, that's a big problem. <laughs> that, and, but at the same time, don't just believe that it's inerrant because otherwise your worldview will fall apart. That's why we're trying to do this episode. Understand and trust and believe from the evidence internally and externally that it is inerrant. And that will bolster your faith so much. Well, and make sure that our kids are equipped. We, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but I even think about, you know, you walk, you walk into a Christian bookstore. Well, if there are any left, if you have a Christian bookstore nearby or you're ordering books labeled Christian from Amazon, um, this is something we need to be really, really, really aware of is because so many books labeled Christian um really are not and have really, really dangerous theology that can just really seep in. Um, and that if we're not on guard, if we're not realizing this, um, I mean, just even the book, The Shack, that just took over and everybody, oh, it's a Christian book. It's not. And I'm not judging you if you have read it or if you enjoyed it, but often we don't have our feelers up for what's so wrong. And you're like, oh, it was just like a book. Um, but we don't realize in how such subtle ways it can start affecting our thinking. Yeah. And if your child or someone who's not as rooted in their faith picks up a book like that, it can be really, really damaging. And so The Shack was this big Christian bestseller. It's not a Christian book. It's right. It does not teach Christianity. Yeah. And um, we need to know that and we need to be aware. We need to know, even from the Christian section of the bookstore, what books are your kids picking up that they don't even realize they're reading heresy? Um, and it's very, it can be very, very subtle. And yeah. it seems, you know, comes in with the quasi sounding, quasi Christian sounding language. Um, and it's not, and we need well, to be aware. And, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a fiction book. And so it's easy to think, well, it's a story made up. So like, I don't really need to worry about that. And generally speaking, that's true. Like just because it's in a, in a story doesn't mean that like, Oh, it, it's technically wrong. Well, yeah, it's, it's made up. But when the stuff in that story starts, like actually can affect your view of God or his word. Well, or and so, it's meant it's to have like, if it, spiritual if it's, inten undertones yeah. and all if that, it's yeah. intended to color and change and flavor the way that you view those things, then you want to be more careful with it because like that, that can happen on such a subconscious level that mm -hmm. like, I mean, you go into the, I'm not even saying don't read them, read it if you want. And like, just knowing that it's going to have be these problems though. and, and yeah. be discerning. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick on the shack. It's just the only one that can come to my mind, but there's so many, um, there are just so many books published by Christian publishers, um, which who, by the way, Christian publishers, <laughs> from my experience in the Christian publishing world, they don't they don't have a filter. They don't have someone checking things for doctrines like they're they're signing contracts with big 
bloggers and they'll publish any book. Like it's, I mean, there's some, there are some Christian publishers who are much more selective than that, but, um, a lot of them are just imprints of secular yeah, publishing. They're anyway. owned. Yeah. All the big Christian publishers now are owned by, um, Harper Collins and all of the big, just traditional publishers. Like they don't care what's being printed. They want to sell books. And I mean, there's good people still in the publishing. I'm not trying to paint it all as yeah. terrible, but there is a very deep problem within our Christian publishing today. So that's, that's my point is we just, we do need to be aware. We need to make sure um, that we are testing stuff, that we are being discerning, that we are um, putting our brains on and thinking critically, and then making sure um, that if our kids are reading things, I, we, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you right now, Jason and I are not opposed to exposing our children to things that we're, we can have discussions on. We don't want to shelter our kids so much that they never come in contact with our stuff. That's actually not our philosophy at all. Yeah, our philosophy is much more to expose them to a lot of these things in a controlled environment that we are able to talk them through. Yeah. And especially in, like in age appropriate ways like as they're becoming teenagers we want them to be aware of what progressive i pick on progressive christianity because it's it's a problem um but you know we want to be they want to i want them to be aware of those we want to talk about why mom and dad believe what we believe and if you have questions we can talk about it like we want them actually to be exposed to a lot of these things um so that we can wrestle through it with them and so we are not ones to say that they should be sheltered and never come into contact with anything but i think very often as christian parents it's easy to be like oh sure yeah was at the christian bookstore sure you can read those books oh sure yeah. you can do that and we become more hands off not realizing what they're reading. And then even as parents, we need to be discerning about what we're reading, what authors we are taking uh, Christian advice from. uh, We just need to be, we need to be discerning. I agree. And that is, is, yeah, I totally agree. So now if at this point we've covered in the last, in this episode, in the last several attributes of scripture, we're trying to establish for you. Now, at this point, if you still have lingering questions about God's word, I think you're really going to like the next several episodes. We've already talked a bit about what they're going to be about, but they're really going to dive into some of these remaining questions or concerns that you might have after all the stuff we've talked about today and in the last episode. So these are the episodes that Jamie is excited for. I am too. Yes, I know, but I'm more excited for these. I've liked these first two, you know, where we're really laying doctrine but in some ways i also feel like these first two episodes are a little more dry um just because it's very much like you know we're, we're laying the groundwork which is good which we should be doing right um but i'm very excited because we're going to get into some more um history and i think hopefully you can just kind of sit back and listen um almost kind of as a story because we're going to be diving into hopefully some fun history. Um, And then we'll be getting into just some other doctrines that we'll start. um, I mean, I'm actually kind of excited to get into some of the doctrines that are going to be more controversial. We're going to cover the different types of baptism. Like there's stuff where you start to depart where so far Christians agree on these authority of scripture, but then we're going to start getting into like baptism faithful Christians disagree on baptism. And so I'm actually kind of excited for that. Um, and so the next two episodes are going to be on the canon of scripture. So we keep saying that scripture is the 66 books of the Bible. Well, there are Catholics, there are Mormons, there are um, 
all kinds of others that have other books. And um, well, I mean, then obviously Islam and, you know, you get into that, but there are people who will add to the 66 books. So why as evangelicals do we only hold to the 66 books, the canon? Um, how was God's form? How was God's word formed the way that it is? Um, how can we trust that those 66 books that are there belong there, that we didn't miss some or that we added too many? Um, and when you really start diving into this, it can give you more confidence confidence in God's word. And so I think it's just really helpful because it can show you, it can show your kids, um, why, yeah, why, why those 66 books and, um, that it is canon. Uh, so we're going to put our history hats on. If you love history, you're going to love it. And if you hate (laughs) history, I'm going to make you love it. Yeah. You will too. <laughs> um, and we're gonna dive into it because it's really fascinating. And we'll hopefully we won't we won't go too deep. We'll, no, we'll keep it fun. And and then after that, like we I mentioned up above, it's the thing that I, I put a, a little signpost on. Very much tied into inerrancy is the question of how can we trust that our English Bibles now are correct? Where we you know we've gone through so many different from the original manuscripts ones that we like have maybe even found ones that were like you know written. After the fact, you know, we'll touch, on the, we'll touch on the Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls, all those things. Like, how can we trust that God's word from what he actually spoke and, and inspired the writers to write have has actually survived inerrantly and in intactly in God's divine inspiration way to today and our current favorite translations, which will also help you see how God's word has been. Preserved, which yes. is really cool. So we're going to do two parts on Bible translations. We're going to have ancient, where we will be talking about um, the languages that it was originally written in. We're going to cover the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, we're going to talk about some things with, um, yeah, just the the ancient. And then we're going to have an episode on modern Bible translations. This is what we get asked about a lot. What Bible translations should we use? Um, how do we, there are different, um, it's not as simple as like, oh, everybody just translated it into English. Well, then why why are they so different? Um, there are different philosophies that the translators will use yes. when approaching their translation. So actually, your translation can make a really big difference on the doctrines you're pulling out of scripture. Yep. And so um, and then we are we will touch on King James only ism a little bit. Yeah, well, um, that's one of the translations we're going to talk about. So yes. we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that. We'll, then. we'll touch on that. And then we're just we'll cover. Um, yeah. The modern translations, which yep. actually I do think will be a fun episode. I am though. looking forward to that. Yeah. I actually find that very interesting. Yeah. So um, I think those are going to be fun because the next ones are going to be kind of doctrine mixed with just like. Even more history than usual. Yes, history lesson. This (laughs) history major over here is very excited. Um, But it's going to be super fun. And um, yeah, so thank you guys so much for tuning in with us. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Um, Thank you for laying all the groundwork and the foundation with us throughout all of these. Taking the time to lay the foundation. Yes, even on these things that we we know, but we we need to... Well, because we're, we're only going upwards from here. We're, yes. we're, we're every time we add a new doctrine or a new attribute of an existing doctrine, we're always going to be building on previous foundation. So it's worth it to go through it, even if it's basic to you, which some of you listening this all that we've talked about the last two episodes yeah. might be quite basic, but you have to start somewhere. And I do think that at least more than the average resource or book, unless it's a very academic, like, you know, seminary level tome, we're going deeper than the surface level that often gets touched on. And so hopefully, even if you are very familiar with these, these attributes of, of scripture, hopefully you understand them in a deeper, more historically informed, more biblically informed way Mm -hmm. than even you did before. And Mm -hmm. if it was not something you're familiar with at all, hopefully you took something away as well. 
you know, we give it a little jumping off ground. Exactly. For some of this. So, all right. Well, you can go ahead and listen to the family discipleship, epi- family discipleship episode. Yep. Did I say it correctly? Um, the next one, uh, 4.5, episode 4.5, um, where you can gather the family around. And um, Jason's going to give a little mini Bible lesson on what we talked about here. Um, He's got some scripture memory for you to work on, a song to sing together as a family. So it's a great little way to kind of just help facilitate uh, family worship in a easy way where you can be working on this. And then next week, we're going to be back with Canon Part One. It's going to be good. Yep. See you then.